Well, good morning, Battle Creek Church. How are you today? Man, hey, before I get started and before we jump into the, the sermon and the message for the day, I want to remind you three weeks from today, say three weeks. Three, three weeks from today, uh, on September the 8th, several things are coming and several things are happening. First of all, on that day, we're launching a new series called Jesus Hates Religion, uh, which five years ago was a very instrumental piece of the DNA of our church. It's a grace grace message right out of scripture. And and so I want you praying about that. And and I also want you thinking about people that need uh, the grace message in their lives. And I also want you to consider trying something new during this series. We're going to start a bunch of new groups uh, during this series that will run for the five-week window uh, that this series is happening. And I want you to think about hosting a group. And, and there's a video, there's a book, it's a book club. You just host the group. If you've got two or three friends, you can start a group and, and we'll see what comes out of that. We'll just see what the Lord wants to do uh, in that and through that. But, but also on that very first week of the series, uh, September the 8th, say September the 8th. September the 8th, three weeks from today. That is what we call a gospel Sunday. And here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to pray, to invest in people's lives, and and to invite. To pray, to invest in people's lives, and to invite. In fact, here's what I'm asking all of you to do in faith. I am asking you to pray to the degree, to invest to the degree, to invite to the degree that you have a person with you on September the 8th. We're not just praying. And we're not just throwing a hook out in the water and hoping somebody will come. I want you to pray like like it depends on you and like it depends on God. I want you to invest in people's lives and make a difference in people's lives. Help people, uh, come alongside people, support people, encourage people. That you earn the right to invite to the degree. You do that to the degree over the next three weeks that you have somebody with you on, on September the 8th. Does that make sense? Battle Creek Church is a group of people who are in a hot pursuit of people who need a relationship with Jesus. And on that day, those people will hear a clear, clear gospel message and and have a chance to respond. And uh, that day also is a baptism day. And if for whatever reason you you have uh, stopped at the step of obedience of being baptized, then then that day you can do it. Take that card out of the seat pocket in front of you and just write check baptism and and write your name on it and write September the 8th. I'm going to be baptized on September the 8th. And one of our staff members will call you and see what questions you have. and, and, And if they can answer your questions and we'll set an appointment for you to be baptized on that day. Okay. In fact, let's, let's pray together in this place and let's pray for those friends that God wants us to not just invite, but to bring. In fact, I've found when all you do is invite, it, it, it falls short. Remember Jesus said, hey, go out in the highways, the byways, the hedges and invite. And they come up with weird excuses. I got to go get the ox out of the ditch. And, uh, you know, I got to go do this. And my dad died and all of these excuses. Jesus is saying it ends up with lame excuses. But when you bring them, amazing things happen. Let, let, let's pray together. Father, today we pray over these people that you're putting on our heart. People you love, you care about, you died for. You made them, you wired them together. So Father, use us and our love for you to to communicate your love for them. And and, and Father, we pray on that day, well, we pray every Sunday, but Father, we pray on that day that you would do something so miraculous in the lives of so many people that we would be amazed. That Father, even we who watch this stuff happen all the time would be shocked at what you did. We would be so thrilled that you used each of us. And so, Father, we just pray 
around that day a hedge of protection. We pray around the people that you have laid on our hearts to invest in and to invite and to bring along, to pray for. Father, we pray thanking you that, Holy Spirit, you work on every end of this equation. While you're here today working in our hearts, you're there working in their hearts wherever there is and wherever they are. And Father, we pray on that day you'd bring that equation together. And so today, as we dive into your word, would you let it come alive? Not let it just be black ink on white pages, but let it be living the word of God that will pierce us into our life source, into our marrow, into who we are. Holy Spirit, would you convict and convince today? In Jesus' name we pray, and together we all say, amen. Now, last week we started a series uh, called This Is Your Place. And when we say this is your place, that means we built it for you with you in mind, but it also means you have a role to play in, in this place. And, and when we built this place, we took a 20,000 foot view of Tulsa and the world, and we set out to build a church that the unchurched could love. And we said this was our goal and our vision from the very beginning was to glorify God by helping all people of all ages all the time advance in their journey with Christ. Now, if you were here last week, you know that we left Mike on the ladder uh, last week. He's been there all week. And, but we went through this whole illustration of saying if the ladder is the church, that what many churches have been guilty of doing is removing the bottom rungs from the ladder so that when people come in from the outside with no knowledge and no experience, they look at us up there and go, wow, look at you guys. That's awesome for you. I don't even know how to get on the ladder. I wouldn't know how to get to where you are. I want what you want have. I, I, I want to know what you know. In fact, there are days I'm even envious of you and your children and your marriage and all of that, but I don't know how to get on there. And, and we said what we wanted to be and do is, is to be a church that intentionally puts these bottom rungs back on the ladder. Now hear me, it, it, it's not just so the people coming in from the outside can figure out how to get on the ladder. It's also so that those of us who've been in church for a long time know how to get down and help somebody else. See, see, removing the rungs from the ladder not only confuses those who are coming in the door, it confuses those of us who've been around for a while because we can't figure out how to get down and help people and be real and relevant and relational into people's lives to the degree that, that they can, uh, we can come down and help them and, and bless them. So, Mike, you can come down. I'll, I'll hold your hand since I was so rude to you last week. And, and I'll help you down where, where you can help everybody else. Give Mike a hand. So here, here's what we said last week. And if you weren't here last week, please go back and watch the message. We said we have to come down from this 20,000-foot uh, vision statement. And what we need is to establish a clear, concise, doable mission statement. And, and, and so here it is. Last week, I'm going to put it up and leave it for a minute because last week, several of you said, you didn't leave it long enough for me to write it. Take a picture. But, but, but here's the mission statement, okay? In fact, take a picture if you want to have this so you can memorize it. I might call on you next Sunday, actually. And, and so you should know it. But Battle Creek is a group of local churches that will help you know God, find real freedom, discover your purpose, and make a global difference. And our mission statement is built off this premise that there are four main needs in the world today. Beyond uh, food and, and shelter, there's four main needs. And here's what we know as insiders. We know Jesus is the answer to all of our needs and, and to all of their needs. Here's what we also know as insiders. We know the local church is Jesus' tool. 
to meet their needs. It is, it is we're to be the hands and feet of Jesus in, in this world. And, and so we, we put it in a sequential uh, place to say, this is your place to know God, to find freedom, to discover your purpose, and, and to make a global difference. So how do we live that out week in and week out? It's very simple, actually. And, and we've used the hands of a clock to illustrate this process. And we've used this word time that, that stands for tell, involve, mature, and empower. This is how we want to spend all of our time as a church. We, we don't want to do anything else. All of our time is spent doing these four things. And, and, and watch how this plays out. People want to know God. They, they want to know God. And so bring them to church with you on Sunday and we'll tell them about God and we'll tell them about Jesus and we'll offer an opportunity for them to come into relationship with their maker and, and their savior. You want to find freedom, involve yourself in a community group. You want to discover your purpose, go with us on this advanced track. Start September the 8th. There's that date again. A bunch of stuff is coming on, on September the 8th. It's going to be game changing September the 8th. So be here and go through this advanced track. It's four weeks long. And in that four-week process, we're going to walk you through this process and help you. You will come out the backside knowing your purpose, your purpose in your life. And you will come out the backside with a whole lot of help and assistance in finding your place in the church and your purpose in the world. You, you, you want to make a difference, we, we will empower you to do that. And, and this whole idea, by the way, it's biblical. And it goes all the way back to the first church. It goes all the way back to the very first church. Now, we looked at this last week. I just want to review with you for a minute. Acts chapter 2 and verse 46. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. But verse 47 says, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people and each day, say each day. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. So they met in the temple, they told people about Jesus. They met home to home and, and they got involved in each other's lives. They, they got into this thing called generosity, which is a huge uh, facet of maturity, right? It, it, it is part of it. It is the path towards maturity. And in fact, by the way, while, while I'm on the subject of generosity, let me just say to you what an amazing summer we had as a church. Over two thousand boys and girls and students joined us, our kids, at camp this summer. Would you just say uh, praise be to God? Over 2,000, that's a mega church uh, of the next generation went to camp with us. And here's the most exciting part about it. 246 of them gave their lives to Jesus Christ. 246 kids gave their lives to Christ this summer. And, and, and I just want to say this to you. If you're coming around, look, look, in the summer, attendance goes down. Giving goes down and expenses and ministry go up. And so during June and July, this is what happens to this whole thing. They cross one another. And, and I just want to encourage you, if you were gone some this summer, would you look back over June and July and ask yourself, look at your giving and say, was I faithful to the Lord in June and July? Did, did, did I give at least a tenth of what God blessed me with over the months of June and July? And if not, catch up. Because as we move into a new church year and we move into a new calendar year, uh, it, it just will help everything out if we would not start behind the eight ball as we move into a new church here. The Bible says, and the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. 
And you know the story because we're reading it in hindsight. It went around the world. A global impact was empowered by God. And in this series, here's what we're doing. We're dealing with these four needs and the four answers provided by the bride, by the, lo- by the local church. And, and this morning, we're in part two, and we're dealing with the involved part. Last week, we talked about know God, and, and, and I want you to understand something. We don't meet in almost 300 homes all over this city every week in what we call community groups because it's convenient, because it's near you. It is. And it is convenient, but that's not the primary reason we do it. It, it, it. The primary reason we do it is not because we could never afford to build enough parking lot, enough classrooms, enough to house everybody. We can't, but, but that's not the primary reason we do it. The primary reason we do that is that's how you get involved in each other's lives. You, you sit down and you share a meal together and you talk to one another and you get involved. And by the way, that's what Jesus did over and over and over again. In fact, on the very last night that he spent with his disciples, before he, he went to the cross, he sat down and he had a meal with them. That's what he did. In fact, Luke chapter 22, turn there if you would, and, and we'll read in verse 20. It says, after supper, we know Jesus was from the South because they call it supper, right? And so after supper, he took another cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement that will be confirmed by my blood, which will be poured out as a sacrifice for you. Now, context, this was the Passover meal. This is an ancient Jewish thing that Jesus is doing with his followers, and it's important. Watch the symbolism as this plays out, because as we're talking about getting involved in each other's lives for a purpose, Make no mistake about it. On that day, Jesus had a purpose. In that Passover, he had a purpose. In that meal, he had a purpose. And it was covenantal. In other words, it was about a covenant. And he was establishing, not just play into the old covenant, he was establishing a new covenant with his disciples and with his followers, with us as believers. And this is what Jesus did. He used this Passover meal from the past. Remember the story? Do you know the story? He sent Moses, go get my people. From Pharaoh, 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 let my people go. That whole thing, oh baby, let my And and he got them and he crossed the Red Sea, right? And he crossed the Jordan. And and that whole journey, the, the Passover angel passed over when they put the blood on the doorpost and did not take the firstborn sons of God's people. That's the meal that they are celebrating. In other words, what Jesus is doing is recycling a Jewish tradition to show us what he is about to do. And that first covenant made with the first Passover meal during the Exodus, way back there during the Exodus, was very specific for a very specific purpose. Back in Exodus, it it was all about their salvation. It was all about them being set free and, and brought out of Egypt. But it was also, don't miss this, a shadow of what was about to happen and Jesus' purpose on the cross. Let's go back to Exodus 6 and look at it, okay? I want you to see it, and I want you to follow along as we uh, play this out. Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. Therefore, say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will free you from your oppression. That's powerful. That's what God is saying. Say to the people that I'm their Lord, and I'm going to free them uh, from oppression. 
and I will rescue you from your slavery in Egypt. I will redeem you with my powerful right arm and with great acts of judgment. And I will claim you as my very own people and I will be your God. And you will know that I am the Lord your God who has freed you from all of this oppression in that place called Egypt. That's the first covenant. And that first covenant was about getting them out of Egypt. It was about getting them to a place of freedom. It was about getting them to a place where they were rescued. And God did it through a covenant. Now, this is really important because I don't want you to miss it. And I hear people miss it all of the time. I don't want you to think that any of that is about Egypt. It's not about Egypt. We have ministries in Egypt. We have ministries in Jordan. We have ministries all over the Middle East. And we have brothers and sisters there whom we really, really, really love. In fact, I'm half Egyptian. And what I would say to you is that, that this is not about Egypt being really, really bad. Some people misappropriate that and, and try to uh, communicate. That's not it. Egypt is amazing. What God is doing at TC Egypt, what God is doing in TC Jordan is lit. I mean, it's like the Holy Spirit just lit a bonfire and let it go. It is amazing. In all my days of traveling the world, I have never seen anything that compares to the move of God that we are watching play out in the Middle East today. In fact, I was there just a couple of months ago, and, and while I was preaching to, to your brothers and sisters in Christ, many of the people who come to the churches over there are refugees. And meaning they were kicked out of their home in Iraq or kicked out of their home in Syria. And, and now we've shared Christ with them, which is an amazing thing to watch women in full head cover who are still fully culturally Muslim, lift their hands and sing praise songs to Jesus Christ. It's fascinating. And, and, and while I'm preaching via a translator, because I don't speak in, you know, their language, and, and, uh, and I'm using a translator. And so while the translator, I say something for one minute, and then he says it for like three, which I'm always in my mind going, what is he adding to what I just said? And I argue with him all the time. I play with him all the time. I'm like, yell when I yell, bro. And, and, and if I cry, you cry. And if I whisper, you whisper. You got to go with me. Help me in this process. But it's a hard thing for an ADD preacher to use a translator. Like an ADD preacher, you got to get on a train and go because squirrel can happen all the time. <laughs> and, and so when I say for one minute and then I'm sitting tight for three while he's explaining what I just said, I, I think all kinds of things like, did I clean the garage before I left? And did I get married at this thing? And did I take care of that? It's weird, actually. It would confuse you if that's, you knew what was going through my mind while, while I'm preaching. And so I'm preaching and I got off on this text, this illustration, it had nothing to do with what I was preaching about, but I started talking about Jonah and, and, and I just threw out a fact then and just said, Hey, by the way, modern day and your lifetime archeologists, biblical archeologists uncovered ancient Nineveh in Mosul, Iraq. That's what I said. And I just moved on with the sermon. And, and when he translated what I just got done saying about 15 ladies raised their hands. And I looked at him and I said, why are they raising their hands? And, and he said, just move on. I said, yeah, that ain't going to happen. And, and, and he, he said, what do you mean? I said, ask them what they want. I'm here to communicate. I don't have a stick I'm trying to get through. I want everybody to get what's happening. And, and so he asked them and, and, and they said, did you say Mosul? And I said, tell them I said, yes, I did. And they raised their hands again. He said, move on. I said, I just told you that ain't going to happen. 
And so I said, ask them. And, and, and they said, that's our home. That's where we're from. And I kept on preaching. The hands went up again. He said, I know, I know. He asked them. And they said, does that mean, is what you're trying to say is that God loves my home? And I said, he loved it so much. He sent a prophet. And when the prophet tried to go the other way, he sent a storm and he sent a fish that spit him out on the banks of your home because he loves your home. He loves the whole world. And he wants the whole world to know. In fact, not only did he love your home in that day, he sent a redneck who's half Egyptian from Tulsa, Oklahoma to your place today to declare he loves your home and he loves you and he loves everybody. Listen, this, this is not about Egypt. God loves the whole world and, and God loves Egypt. I think he really, really, really loves Egypt. He made us extra handsome and extra smart. <laughs> This is not about Egypt. It was about bondage. In fact, you could read that word bondage, just replace the word Egypt with bondage, and you get a better understanding as to what it is that God is trying to say. Put the word bondage in for, for Egypt. So watch this. Write this down. That first Passover covenant was all about, I'll get you out of Egypt, or I'll get you out of bondage. But, but by the time Jesus comes along and is on the scenes, they're out of Egypt right? You know that. That, that. That's done. So why the new covenant? Because God knew that he can get you out of Egypt, but you may still have a little bit of Egypt left in you. And, and the second Passover covenant was all about, I'll get Egypt out of you. I'll get the bondage out of you. Now here's the tricky part, because this is a process. We like to think about this as a moment, and we ask the question, look, we celebrate it around here all the time, when men and women and boys and girls cross that faith line and trust Jesus as Lord and Savior. I just did it a moment ago. I said, in this summer, 246 boys and girls accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so we ask those kind of questions, when were you saved? Past tense. And that's true. Listen, you need a date. You need to know when the date was. You need to know when was that moment when you raised your hand and you said a prayer and you said, in the best way that I know how. I turn my back on my sin and I trust you alone, Jesus, to save me. And when you did that, biblically, here's what we know. You were forgiven of your sins and Jesus made paid in full on your account. And that day you were saved and nobody can ever take that away from you. But the problem is this, that three days later, that may be generous for some of us, three hours later, we, we sinned again. And then we send again and again and again. And we're like, what is going on? I thought I was saved. I thought my sin was dealt with. I thought it was taken care of. I am so confused because we are free from sin, but we are still sinning. And so it's very important for you to see the process here. Turn over to the New Testament, Colossians chapter 2. Colossians is the Apostle Paul, and he's writing to the church at Colossae, and, and he's explaining this new covenant. And now, by the way, if you're trying to figure out the timeline of all this, okay, Colossians and Paul is 
after Jesus died on the cross, okay? And, and the Exodus is before Jesus died on the cross. We obviously are living after Jesus died on the cross. So you and I are part of a new covenant. And Paul is explaining the new covenant in, in the book of Colossians. Look at what he says. You were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. That word there is circumcised, actually. That's what he does to your sin nature. He cuts it away. It was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive in Christ and forgave all of your sins. He canceled the record. In other words, there is no more record. It doesn't exist. He burned it up. It's gone. The record of the charges against us, he took it away by nailing it to the cross. In other words, he became your sin, all of it. He became it. And then he was nailed to a cross and he bled and he died and he bled the blood of the covenant. You remember Luke 22, he said, this cup is my blood. And all throughout scripture, wine is a picture of the blood and a picture of the Holy Spirit and a picture of joy. And he's using pictures and the disciples got it. They didn't like it, but, but they got it. He, he's telling us this wine is my blood. In other words, something is about to go down. It's about to get real up in here, is what Jesus was saying. Blood is about to be shed, and, and I am going to cancel the record of your sins. I am going to forgive you of all your sins. And he did that on the cross, and that is the essence of the new covenant. Let, let me give you three things that you need to know, and you need to write down, and you need to claim, and you need to live in that Jesus did for us on, on the cross. Number one, he gave us victory over sin. He forgave all of our sins. And it wasn't just your past sins that he forgave. It wasn't just the sins that you committed before you came to Christ. In fact, let me ask you the question. How many sins had you committed when Jesus died on the cross? The first service said all. We had to back up and do a whole history lesson. How many of you were here in 33 AD? There's a few of you that maybe you were here, right? None of us, all of our sins were future sins. And so when Jesus appropriated the blood to our sins, all of them were future. So how much sense does it make that he would apply the blood to the sins that you committed before you came to Christ, but not apply them to the sins that you commit after you come to Christ? It doesn't make a lick of sense, right? What he did is apply it to all, meaning that he erased the record of all your sins, your past, your present, and your future sins. He covers all the tenses here. So there's no need to be tense about it. He has applied the blood and you are free from the guilt of sin. Not only did he give you victory over sin, he gave you healing from your wounds. Now, I want to differentiate this for you, okay? And I want to make it simple. And in the art of trying to make this simple, I'm going to oversimplify it, okay? But I know what I'm doing because I want to communicate and I want you to understand it. And so I know I'm oversimplifying this, but I want to differentiate between these two. Sin is what we do to ourselves. Wounds are what others do to us. You break your marriage vows, you cheat on your spouse, you did that. Sin. Your spouse leaves one day with no warning, they did that. Wound. You sin, you bear the guilt. If you're sinned against, you bear the wound. How many of you have ever heard this phrase before? By his stripes, you are healed. How many of you have heard that? Anybody know where that comes from? Isaiah. It's the prophet Isaiah. 
And Isaiah is declaring hundreds of years before Jesus comes along what Jesus would do on the cross and what he did do was for all of us. And people sometimes will say, uh, with a Baptist background, they'll just say to me, hey, Pastor Alex, you, you believe in divine healing? You better believe that I believe in divine healing. I have experienced it on both ends of the equation, praying for it and receiving it. But, but sometimes what people do is they get single focus and they only get in one lane when it comes to healing. And, and they think it's only about the physical. Hear me, that promise is about the physical, it is about the emotional, and it is about the spiritual. It is about all of it. Listen, why on earth is it so important that you and I get healed from our wounds? Wounds don't actually separate us from God, right? What's the big deal that we need to have all of our wounds healed? Well, the Bible explains wounds in a bunch of different ways. Over in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27, Paul calls them a foothold. Uh, over in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 15, they're called a root. What, what do both of those things have in common? An attack from the enemy. In other words, he will use these wounds to gain a foothold in your life to plant a root of bitterness inside of you, which will hold you back from all that God intended you to be. And if you're saved, listen, this is not a heaven or hell issue. This is a quality of life issue. He came to give you not only heaven, he came to give you abundant life here and now. But Jesus offers hope for even that. Now, now here's the third thing that, that, that he gives us on the cross, authority over the enemy. Look at that next verse in, in, in Colossians 2. In this way, he disarmed, means he took away, he took away the, the weapons. He disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Satan thought he had defeated Jesus on the cross, but instead what he had actually done is facilitated the greatest story of redemption ever told. And he messed up. And it was at that point that, that Satan was unarmed and, and, and disarmed. And, and some of you might think, well, if Satan is disarmed, why do I still feel the sting of his attack? In this spiritual warfare. The thing is, look, he's disarmed. It doesn't mean he's not deadly. He's a defeated foe. But he's not fighting like it. And the best illustration is the distance between D-Day and V-Day. If you study World War II, you understand. It was over for Hitler on the beaches of Normandy. But he fought a bloody, vicious fight for a long time after that until the victory was declared all over uh, Europe and the known world. That's where the devil is. Listen, we're between those two days, and he is still fighting like he has a chance. And the Bible says he prowls around like a roaring lion. He's not really a lion. He's just like a lion. And he has no teeth, but he has a massive roar. And it's all smoke and mirrors and it's all facade in the life of a believer. It's all these footholds and all these roots that, that declare to you that they're bigger than Jesus. They're not bigger than Jesus. It is a lie when they declare these things are bigger than Jesus in your life. And, and so he has no teeth, but he has this roar. And so we have to go take authority back from him. And by the way, as a believer, he only has authority in our lives when we give it to him. And sometimes we unwillingly and unknowingly give it to him through a wound of no fault of our own because we hang on to that wound and we nurse it like it's a baby all by itself and the enemy has ground to stand on there. And we give that ground to Jesus by rolling back on these first two things, victory over sin and, and healing from our wounds. And we keep repeating the same sins. 
and the same habits and the same hangups and, and we refuse to repent and we refuse to mature and, and we're holding on to those wounds and, and, and we're nursing those wounds. But this is where this gets tricky because it's all past tense. Everything Paul's saying. After the cross, it's past tense. How on earth are we still dealing with this if Jesus finished the work? And it comes down to how you were put together by God. Look, look, write this down. You are a spirit that has a soul that lives in a body. That's how God made you. And some scholars want to say, no, we're dual. We'll not, we're not try. That's silly. Because Genesis says we're made in the image of God. God is three. So we are three. You understand what I'm saying? And, and, and you can think whatever you want to think. You'll apologize to me in heaven. We, we are three. We are spirit, soul, and body. And so you are not a physical being with temporary spiritual experiences. That is not who you are. You are a spiritual being who has temporary physical experiences. But yet we wear the glasses of the physical. That we think that what happens in this 50, 60, 70 years that we get here on earth in the physical is what matters and what counts. It is not what matters. It is not what counts. And it's not who you really are. You are a spiritual being with temporary physical experience that will go on and live spiritually forever and ever and ever. And so I want you to walk through these parts of who you are today. You are, have been, and will always be a spirit at your core. That is the part of you that is honestly and truly you. Just like in Genesis, when God reached in and took the dust out of the ground and breathed the breath of life into the, uh, into the dust, into the nostrils of Adam. The Hebrew word there is ruach, and ruach means spirit. He became a living spirit. And when you are conceived and when you are born, you are not some mass of flesh. God has breathed his life into you and that life is spirit. And when you accept Jesus into your life and you put your faith in him and on him, when you, when you get saved, that means your spirit is saved. That's why John says in chapter three, I assure you no one can enter the kingdom of heaven without being born of water and of spirit. Salvation is a spiritual rebirth first and foremost. It is your spirit coming alive. It is the Holy Spirit of God coming to dwell in your spirit that was made in the image of God. Now the next part of who you are is your soul. What, what, what's the soul? The soul is your mind, your will, and your emotions. It's how you think, it's how you feel, it's how you are driven. The soul separates you from every other creature on light, on planet earth, right? It's how God has made us as humans very special in the world. We have minds. We can think. We can figure stuff out. We can invent. We can come up with mathematical, some of you can come up with mathematical equations. And art. And we can send people to the moon. And, and by the way, our wills also separate us. Not just our minds, but our wills. What, what's the very first word that little baby learned? No. And not just no, the second word is mine, right? We, we have wills, and, and that makes us different. But our emotions also make us very special. That, that we have the capacity for compassion. And we have the capacity to care uh, for, for others. Our minds, our wills, and our emotion. Th that's what makes up our soul. And when you come to Christ, watch this, your spirit is saved. Past tense, done, over. Your soul is being saved. And your body one day will be saved. When you receive a spiritual body. 
Philippians 2 says, even though you are saved, right, we work out our salvation. I spent a whole hour on this in July. You remember? Work out your salvation. What is done in your spirit, work it out in your soul, your mind, your will, and emotions. And, and, and so it's your soul that is being saved. Your spirit is saved. Your soul is being saved. Your body one day will be saved when you receive that spiritual body. Now, you, you hear verses in the scriptures and Psalms. 103, verse 1, where David says, praise the Lord. Oh, my soul, all that is within me, praise his holy name. Do you know what that is? That is David's spirit telling David's soul what to do. Why? Because your soul doesn't naturally want to love God. Your soul doesn't naturally want to worship God. Your spirit has to get out front. And, and, and look, there are people way smarter than me that have way more PhDs and, and, and have studied this a lot longer than I've been alive. But, but all the clinicians today want, want to separate this prefrontal cortex part of your brain from that word that has 88 consonants in it. Medulla oblongata. If I mess it up, just pretend. And they talk about this is the caveman part of your brain where you just fight or flight, right? And you got to get it into the thinking part. Listen, I promise you, I promise you, I promise you, one day the clinicians are going to come around and say, what's happening there is, is the soul is out front or the spirit is out front. Why? Because science catches the word of God gradually. And what your maker designed and spoke over you, science one day will come around to it. Why? Because he gave us a mind and he's letting us learn and he's letting us catch up to what he's already declared is true. And, and here's the deal. As long as you live on this planet, you will live inside of a body. And as long as you have a body, you will have issues. You can't escape them. But as believers, you don't have to be ruled by them either. And it's not about getting out of this skin and out of this earth suit and out of this planet. It's about freedom. You're out of Egypt. You're saved by the blood of Jesus. Now it's time to get Egypt out of you. And sometimes we're so afraid to admit that we have issues, but, but every single one of us has issues. If you got skin, you got issues. If you're breathing, you got issues. And, and when you say, I don't have any issues and I don't have any problems, that's like saying, I don't need skin and I don't need to breathe. You, you have issues. And, and, and by the way, admitting that you have issues is the beginning and the first step towards freedom. The first step is admitting, hey, I'm not perfect and I need help. By the way, when you try to get in the church world and live in such a way where you pretend you don't have any issues, you're in danger of entering dead religion. Did I mention we're starting a series called Jesus Hates Religion? Why? Because it's dead. And it removes and robs every chance of intimacy with Jesus that he died to give you. That's why we decided around here a long time ago, we're going to get real at Battle Creek. And, and we say it this way, we're the perfect place for imperfect people. Why? Because there are no perfect people. And when we get real about it, then we can actually begin to do something about it. So we're going to get real about how we get free. And getting free begins in your mind. It begins with the thoughts. It begins with your beliefs. And what's the number one factor that affects the thought life more than any other? We say it to kids and we say it to teenagers all the time. But we think we no longer need it when we become adults. You show me your friends and I'll show you your future. You say, what are you doing? I'm bringing it full circle. All of this is about where we started. If you want real freedom, 
Let me just put it in redneck vernacular for you this morning. Get in a group, be authentic, and don't be weird. <laughs> but, but here's the thing, listen, you have to be intentional and you have to be serious about this. You cannot just hang out together and have lunch. You cannot just go play golf. You cannot just hang out and, and play basketball or watch a game with one another. You have to be intentional and you have to be serious about why you are getting together and who you are getting together with. And the reason is this, confession will break the bondage of sin. And some of you get really, really nervous when I make that statement because when I make that statement, confession will break the bondage of sin, you, you thought, well, that sounds weird. And I would agree. I, I, I would agree. My staff knows, hey, don't invite me to trust falls or any of that nonsense. I ain't doing it. I'm not doing ropes courses with you and crying with one another and having a, I think you're a bunch of sissies. I don't want to do any of that. I'm not a touchy-feely human being like that. Forget it. I'm out. So it does sound weird, but it, but it doesn't have to be weird. Some of you, you hear that word confession and you picture a priest and you're sharing your deepest, dark, darkest sins to a complete stranger, which all of history has proven does not work. It may heal you, but it'll screw up the priest. <laughs> hear me, it's so weird that to the average person, right? And we're anti-weird around here. And what we're talking about is being real, relevant, and relational. And when we say confession, what we're talking about, get together and confess the truth. Confess means say the same thing as. You say the same thing as the truth. How's your week? How are you doing? What are your struggles? How can I pray for you this week? How can I help you with that this week? You might say, Alex, confession, that's Catholic. I'm telling you, it's biblical. It is 100% biblical. Look at the proverb, chapter uh, 28, verse 13. People who conceal their sins will not prosper. You say it looks like they're prospering for a minute. But if they confess and turn from them, they will receive mercy. You say that's confession to God. Nope. That's not what that is. But 1 John 1, 9 says if we are faithful to confess to God, He will forgive our sins. His role in our confession is forgiveness. He will forgive what we have done. But His plan for healing is God's people. And the key to forgiveness is confession to God. The key to healing is the people of God. And the key to, to, to freedom, hear me, it's settling your yesterdays. That's what it is. It's settling your yesterdays. And the only way you can settle your yesterdays is in the context of other people. That's the only way you can do it. In fact, take a look at this new covenant scripture in the New Testament in James chapter 5. Confess your sins to, say it. And pray for, say it, so that you may be healed. This is not about God. It's not. God is involved in the equation. He gave the prescription, but what the one he gave is this each other piece in, in this scripture. I, I, I've been trying to find a way to illustrate this all week, and here's the best I can do, okay? So humor me for a minute. How many of you have ever been to AA? Ra raise your hand. Okay, some of you. How many of you uh, have seen it on TV? Raise your hand. If you haven't seen it on TV, you're like, raised under a rock. <laughs> We've seen it. We all know how this thing plays out, right? And it doesn't have to be AA. It can be any addiction. But you, there's no such thing as an AA meeting where you stare in the mirror all by yourself. Right? Am I right? Yes. 
In order for it to be an AA meeting, it has to be a group. So let's play this out. Let's pretend like we're at an AA meeting today, and I'll start and say, hi, my name is Alex. So you've seen it. You lied. You've all seen it. I don't watch the devil TV. You've seen it. And I think it's hilarious that they call it Alcoholics Anonymous. Because it seems like the exact opposite of anonymous to me. You start the meeting introducing yourself. (laughs) Hear me, this is a spiritual principle. You can't get free anonymously. You should write that one down. It has a ring to it. (laughs) You can't get free anonymously. Sounds like a rap, actually. You can't get free anonymously. You can't get free anonymously. Let's do it together. You can't get free anonymously. No, you can't get free anonymously. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Oh, the gospel, come here, come here, come here. Come here. Turn, turn this on, turn this on, turn this on. Give, give me a beat, gospel. No, you can't get free anonymously. No, you can't get free anonymously. Come on. You can't get free anonymously. You can't get free anonymously. Cause ain't nobody like a Battle Creek party. Cause a Battle Creek party don't stop. Ain't nobody like a Battle Creek party. Cause a Battle Creek party don't stop. Can't hear you. Gospel. That's the gospel truth. Hear me, you cannot get free anonymously. What does that mean? It means you have to call your name. You have to call the issue out by name. And in the spiritual world, you got to take it a step further than that. And, and you got to call out who you really are in Christ. Who is it that you really are in Christ? Why? Because you can't get free anonymously. Listen, I'm not starting a meeting saying, hey, I, my name is Alex. I'm an alcoholic. That's not true. My name is Alex and I am saved by the blood of Jesus. I am washed by his blood. The spirit of God lives inside of me. And I happen to be struggling with X, Y, or Z. And I'm not knocking what they do. Listen, it can go further because you have to, as a believer, if I have no belief in Christ, I got to go in this program. But in Christ, I go into a program like this and I've got to learn to confess who I really am because you can't get free anonymously. And it may not be alcoholism. It may be anger or guilt or shame. And we all, hear me, we all need to be set free from something. And that's why we say, if you want real freedom, get in a group, be authentic, and don't be weird. Because I have experienced this so many times in my own lifetime. Listen, I'll walk into a group and, and somebody finally gets the courage to share that what they're dealing with is real anxiety or anger. They fly off the handle at their children or their spouse and they don't know why and they don't know where that comes from. And every single time, God is gracious enough to have put somebody in that group who has gained victory in that and can speak into it and can confess victory and can, and can share with them. And l- listen, you walk into a group, uh, somebody, I see it all the time, I watch it all the time. Somebody who's dealing with unfaithfulness is invited into a group by somebody who dealt with unfaithfulness. 
And they can share it. And maybe you're facing betrayal or the loss of a loved one. God will put you with people who can speak victory over that. That's why Paul told us in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, it, God comforts us so that the comfort we have been comforted with, we can then comfort others. And that's why this thing leads to real healing. And when I say confession, I'm not talking about lying to a holy man in a phone booth. I'm talking about being real, relevant, and relational to the point that you could be helpful to people's lives who are are looking for freedom. And the Holy Spirit convicts of sin. That's one of his roles. But he also convicts of righteousness. I say it this way. He convicts of sin and convinces of righteousness. And that's what we need from one another in a group. We, we got to not just confess uh, just my trip ups and my hang ups. I got to confess who I really am in Jesus Christ. And there it is. We don't just confess to God. We confess to others. We get together. We do life together. We get real with, with each other. And, and when we do that, it makes us stronger. Look, look at what James goes on to say. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power. By the way, people try to trip me up all the time with that word. They say, well, Pastor, I'm not, I'm not in a group with righteous people. If you're with believers, you are. You say, I don't, I don't think so, not in my group. Oh, you, you still believe that righteousness is an act of the flesh. By what you do and by what you avoid, that's religion. Righteousness is not an act of the flesh. Righteousness is, is an act in the spiritual world where he cuts away the sin nature and, and saves you by putting his spirit in you. So if you're with believers, who they are before God is righteous. Who have issues and hangups just like you. That's why we need each other, right? The prayers of the righteous has great power and produces wonderful, wonderful re results. That's God's design. He made you to need other people. The spiritual uh, life was not meant to be a DIY. You, you can't download a book to your Kindle and sit at home all by yourself and watch some preacher on TV and, 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 and you know, buy worship albums and expect to be discipled and expect to really grow. Why? It's not God's plan. And much of your spiritual growth will take place in the context of community. You know, the healthiest bodies of water exist on the earth, have a source flowing into them, and they have a source flowing out of them. Likewise, you need a source flowing into you. You need that. And you need to also be pouring into the lives of other people. You really want to grow? Pour into somebody's life. That's why it's the principle of each other. And that's why we think that hundreds, if not thousands of you could start a group. Get two or three of your friends together and host a group for five weeks. You say, I, I, I'm not a leader. You've misunderstood the definition of leadership. You have a bad definition. You know what leadership is? Influence. It's nothing more and it's nothing less. In fact, what leadership really is, is influence that leads people to a place they would not have gone otherwise. They don't need you if they'd have gone there by themselves, right? And, and so it's just influence, and all of you have influence. All of you have influence. You could host a group. I'm not saying you do it forever. I'm saying do it for five weeks. 
and watch and see what will happen as God uses you. And so let me just summarize this this way. Remember what we're talking about. We're talking about finding freedom. And we said the prescription is getting involved in a community group. I've said it twice already. I want to put it on the screen for you. Finding real freedom. Get in a group. Be authentic. And don't be weird. If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, you, you don't know God. I want to help you. We, we want to help you. And if somebody brought you here today and invited you and drug you here today, you, you should thank them. Because they brought you to a place where you can come to know God who loves you, who made you, and has a plan for you. Would you bow your heads all across all of our worship centers this morning? I want to lead you in a prayer, helping you know God, helping you find a relationship with Jesus. And so right where you're seated, I'm going to pray this prayer one phrase at a time so that you can repeat it after me. Nobody's going to pray alone. But if you want to trust Christ from every campus, right where you're seated, would you just say, Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I've messed up. But today I ask you to forgive me for all of my sin. Jesus, come into my life to be my Lord, my Savior, my forgiver. In the best way that I know how, I turn my back on my sin and I trust you alone, Jesus, to save me. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name we pray. And together we all say, Amen. Would you thank the Lord today for salvation? Hey, just, just two quick announcements. I'm going to let you go. Okay, n n number one, what, what do I do? Get in a group. Get in a group. You say, I don't know how to find one. Go to battlecreekchurch.com forward slash group. Or, or you can go out in the lobby or the porch at Midtown, wherever you are. And, and there's a booth set up where people are wearing Life is Better Together shirts. And, and they'll help you find a group. If you are in a group, let, let me, or start one. Okay, get one or start one. But, but let me say this, if you're in a group, I wanna give you two preferential options. You're already in a group. Number one, start one also. Go to yours, and on another day of the week, lead this five-week group. Not forever, just for five weeks. That's preference number one. Preference number two would be take a sabbatical from five, for five weeks from your other group and start one, okay? And, and let's watch and see what God will do. Start a Jesus Hates Religion group, okay? Now, there was a card in the chair, that red card. Uh, when you sat down today, it looked like this, okay? Hold it like this, hold it up. Everybody hold this card up if you would, okay? You got one, every campus? Take a minute and fill that out, okay? If you're considering hosting a group, then fill this out and your campus pastor is gonna come in a minute and he's gonna tell you where to take this card, make it legible, and you take it and they're going to give you this, which has all of the leadership resources you need to, to start the group. If you don't have a Jesus Hates Religion book, stop on your way out. If you need to get one for a couple of people, a group you're going to lead, stop and get those on the way out. But your campus pastor is going to come right now and give you more information on where to take this. And I'm going to the guest reception just outside the door. Somebody at your church is going to the guest reception just outside the door. They would love to shake a hand, say hello, meet the guests that you brought with you today. If you came to be prayed over, there'll be people there that'll pray over you. Uh, come if you would. Can we give Pastor Alex some love and appreciation for that amazing message?